All right, Isaiah chapter 58 is where we will be today. If you have a coffee house Bible, that's page 638. 638, uh, Isaiah chapter 58. I'm going to dive straight in today because I think the text itself is its own tension. Let's, let's look at this. This is part three of our series on prayer and fasting. And I've called this justice, as you'll see why. Isaiah 58 is one of the most important justice chapters anywhere in Scripture. And so, Trevor's right. It's a little long. I appreciated him uh, reading through it. But actually, I think it's worth slowing down even more and going over kind of phrase by phrase, word by word. So that's what we're going to do today. I broke it up into three parts. The first part of Isaiah 58 I've called the fast we choose. The second part of Isaiah 58 is the Lord saying, this is the fast that I choose. So the fast we choose, the fast I choose. And then the last part will be the feast, the feast. The fast we choose, the fast I choose, the feast. All right. Verse 1, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion to the descendants of Jacob, their sins. You see the announcement of Isaiah 58. He's like, shout it once more for the people in the back. What's he wanting to shout? Do you see it? They're rebels and they're sinners. <laughs> I was like, okay. How come they're not able to hear it, though? How come they, they don't see it for what it is? It's because their unrighteousness is actually masked by their religion. Take a look at verse 2. This is the reason why. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. You see, all of these are good things. They are after God. They're after truth. They're, they want the word. They, they want the ways of God. They are eager. They are zealous. That's this language. And they just keep going back day after day, day after day. This is, we would call this a pretty good rhythm of life. I was like, man, that's a pretty strong religion. They're seeking me out. But the NIV gives us a clue here that actually isn't in the Hebrew. And it's these phrases. Do you see where it says they seem as if and they seem? Now, a couple of notes on this. This is totally right in terms of interpretation, but it's totally wrong in terms of translation. What's happening is that day after day, they're going to the temple to do worship, to do ritual and religion. And yet what God declares and shouts to the people in the back is that your religion is actually unrighteous. It's rebellion. It's sin. Why? Look at verse 3. We get a glimpse of their motives. Why have we fasted? They say, this is the fast we choose. Why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Do you see that? Why did we do this if you're not going to do your part? You remember when you were in elementary school or middle school and you went over to the vending machine, you put 50 cents in and the snicker bar got stuck? And it's so frustrating. You had to go find like the big kid in the class who actually had the strength. This is me. I had to go, I'll, I'll say, I had to go find the big kid in class who could go shake the machine so that I could get the candy. And it's like, you're supposed to do your job, God. I put in my 50 cents. I put the animal up on the altar. I gave my tie to the priest. Where's my part? And they're shaking down God. The scholars are actually, they're, they're um, explicit about this. This is Ray Orland. He sees, it seems that they treated their worship as a way of manipulating God. God rejects his people's worship, however lavish, because they use it as a pious evasion of the self-denying demands of helping the weak. So you feel good about their ritual, but there's no righteousness in it. Montier, he says, a religion that assumes a relationship with God while discounting a relationship with other people. That's the problem here. It's manipulation. It's God's a, a candy dispenser, and you're shaking them down, and God's like, I will not be shaken down by you. Look at verse 4. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Exploit is Exodus language for what the taskmasters do to the people of God. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, in striking each other with wicked fists. These are just, these people are fasting, they're going without food, and they're just hangry about it. It's like, there's nothing spiritual about their experience, and you can tell by the way they treat other people. You cannot fast as you do today and expect for your voice to be heard on high. Your religion, I can't hear you because of your unrighteousness. Verse 5. 
Is this the kind of fast that I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. He's like, if I just wanted you to bow down, is it only for bowing one's head like a reed? Picture like a, a river with, with things just bobbing in the wind. He's like, is that really what I wanted? For lime and sackcloth and ashes? Did I just want you to get dusty? Is that what you call a fast? I love that line. <laughs> is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? It seems to me that the fast that we choose is often filled up with religion and ritual. And this is a real danger for people like us who are just beginning journeys of fasting. Now, I'm not just talking about, like, we're two weeks in. I mean, most of us didn't grow up with fasting as part of our rhythm. And so it can feel really kind of fainting, and we can feel proud of ourselves for how we're taking this step. This is an important word. This is an essential corrective from Scripture on the nature of true fasting and the purpose of it. So the fast that we choose is often what I call here self-righteous religion. There's three dimensions of self-righteous religion. The first dimension is that it seeks after the vertical. I want God day after day. You know, I'm eager. Give me more word. Lord, hunger. We're hungry for you, God. Do you hear us? But two, it not only seeks the vertical, but it denies the horizontal. Do you see that? And we'll see it much more explicitly in verses 6 through 12. It's, I want God. Meanwhile, I'm ignoring all of my obligations around me. But the third dimension of this is that it centers the self. It actually says, this is actually for me. Why would I fast anyway if you're not going to come through with your part? Remember verse 3, the motives? This is for me. And so... One scholar, he, he called this Project Self. Let me share uh, an extended quotation from Project Self. This is DJ Moroda. He says, Project Self is, is shorthand for the, the total life pursuit of self-actualized identity, like where you become your fullest self. Happiness and meaning and purpose and health. It involves your job and your romantic partner, your physical well-being, your recreation, your home, your amenities, your style, your whatever. Project self is you designing your life to fit your ideal, conforming everything to your personal definition of the true and the beautiful and the good. And here's the problem. When followers of Jesus pursue project self, they often co-opt the spiritual practices of the church for personal enhancement. And when spiritual practices are subsumed under project self, they end up serving a very different purpose from their original intent. The original intent was obedience to Christ's commands, conformity to his image. The ultimate purpose of all spiritual practices, and indeed all of life, is to obey and become more like Jesus. He says, but when we take on spiritual practices for Project Self, there's a twisting. A few examples. The first, prayer. He says, Project Self uses prayer like this. I use daily prayer because it centers me. It slows me down. It helps me to focus. It helps me to be mindful. I feel much better after I pray. You see how it centers me in the experience of prayer? Meanwhile, the other, the Christ conformity purpose of prayer is I practice daily prayer in order to commune with the living God to whom I owe the fullness of gratitude for every breath, every good thing, and my eternal salvation. Do you see the difference? One is about me, one's actually about God. One centers me, one centers him. Sabbath. Here's another example. Project Self says, I use the weekly habit of Sabbath rest as a way to unwind, detox, and rest after a long, hard week. It refreshes me and feels like a reward for my labor. You say, what's wrong with that? Here's the Christ conformity vision of Sabbath that he says. He says, I practice the weekly habit of Sabbath rest in order to remember that God alone holds all things together, not me. I rest in the accomplished work of Jesus even if my own work hasn't gone very well this week. And here in Isaiah 58, it's not prayer exactly. It's not Sabbath exactly. He's going to talk about both those pieces. It's fasting. And the fasting for Project Self has all of these benefits for me and the things that I want to get out of it. And it's just a vending machine Christianity where you're trying to shake down God to give you the thing that you now deserve because of what you put in. But this is critiqued by by Isaiah. He says it's actually rebellion when we choose ritual with no righteousness. He calls it rebellion. He calls it sin in verse 1. In Isaiah 117, he says, stop praying to me. I'm 
weary from all of your praying. You're holding up hands to me? He says, your hands have blood on them. Isaiah 117, do justice. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Then come talk to me. This isn't isolated. It's not just Isaiah's thing, right? This is all over scripture. Zechariah, he's actually talking about fasting. He says, when you fasted, was it really for me that you fasted? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. He says, this is the fast that I want. One that's not just ritual and religion, but leads to righteousness. What does the Lord require of you? You remember Micah 6, eight, But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Not recommend. Require. <laughs> this, is, this is all over the prophets, but it's also all over Jesus in the New Testament. Remember Jesus, whenever he has that judgment scene in Matthew 25. I preached on that several weeks ago. <laughs> this is that last day. The standard of judgment is going to be how you treated what he calls the least of these, my brothers and sisters. They're like, when did we see you? But his whole point is the standard of judgment in salvation is going to be dependent not just on your vertical relationship, but on your horizontal relationship too. James says that pure and underfollowed religion before God, it's this. It's to go care for and visit widows and orphans and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. This is true religion. It's horizontal too. James 2 says faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. So one scholar, he talks about the chilling message of Isaiah 58. He says the implications of this accusation are clear. That justice is not just one more thing that needs to be added to the people's portfolio of religious behavior. He says a lack of justice is a sign that the worshippers heart are not right with God at all. And that their prayers and all their religious observance are just filled with self and pride. Self and pride. This is Project Self applied to fasting. And he says... Project self doesn't actually do the thing that you want. I'm going to close my ears and close my eyes to the things that you're doing. So the tendency of religious people is often to use these things like a lever or like a vending machine. And this leads to this emphasis on external religion. Let me just show you. Let me show you. God, I'm showing you. Everybody, I'm showing you. But this isn't the nature of biblical faith. In Jesus and the prophets, in their critique, self-righteous religion is always marked by insensitivity to issues of social justice, while true faith is marked by profound concern for the poor and the marginalized. So, let me transition to the second kind of phase of Isaiah 58. Let me just explore one of the main critiques. I realize this sentence may not make sense. I don't think there's, a, I think there's an extra S somewhere. The most compelling critiques of religion come from the Bible itself. So let me, let me use this to transition. Sometimes in a quest for justice, in a quest for justice, many take aim at Christianity. Rightfully so. Understandably, right? It's, it's pretty easy to look at the history of Christianity and say, well, there's a lot of injustice here. You can go down ancient history, like, I'm not comfortable with all of those writings. That makes me really uncomfortable to go back and read. Medieval history, how about the Crusades? Even after the Re Reformation, there's the, the colonialization of, and the integration of mission work into it. The witch trials, the Inquisition, it's like, ugh. And even recent history, not just ancient history, shows us this thing with sex scandals, child abuse, there's just so much injustice in the church. And so it can be really easy in a quest for justice to take aim at Christianity, and rightfully so. But if you turn to secular justice in order to critique Christianity, you actually cut off the branch that you're sitting on and that you're throwing rocks from. Let me just share this. I think many people turn to secular critiques in an effort to critique Christianity or the church, and it's actually not helpful. It's not it doesn't actually have the foundation you think it does. For one, secular critiques have no basis in themselves. And for two, Christianity has within itself the best basis for critiques. Tim Keller, he puts it like this. He says, while the church has inexcusably been party to the oppression of people at times, it's important to realize that the Bible gives us tools for analysis and unflinching critique of religiously supported injustice from within the faith. Even strong secular critics of Christianity are really using resources from within Christianity to denounce it. 
The typical criticisms by secular people about the oppressiveness and the injustices of the Christian church actually come from Christianity's own resources. The shortcomings of the church can be understood historically as the imperfect adoption and practice of the principles of the Christian gospel. And so in our search for justice, what I'm actually saying is the Bible gives us the power to critique our religion better than anyone else can critique our religion. And if we have ears to hear the Bible like Isaiah, like Jesus, like James, they have a voice that we need to listen to. And the voice isn't threatening because it comes from within our holy scriptures. I understand that many are sensitive about justice, particularly secular paradigms of justice. And I hope you hear me saying, there are no such things as secular paradigms of justice. They all, all secular paradigms of, of justice are built on the back of Christianity. There is, there is no other foundation apart from a holy God who creates a, a people made in his image who have inherent dignity and worth, as we'll see in Isaiah 58. So let's dive in. Let's transition from the fast that we choose with an openness to critique from the scriptures themselves, and let's look at the fast that the Lord chooses, starting in verse 6. The fast that I choose, that's the phrase that the Lord uses. He says, is, is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? This is what I choose. If it's up to me, and you don't treat me like a vending machine, this is what I would be after. To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. Do you see all the freedom language? This is liberation work. Loosing, untying, freeing. But not just loosing, untying, and freeing, breaking every yoke. There's a lot of chains and cords and yoke language, which makes sense because he's actually talking about in this time, wealthy landowners who are oppressing their workers. Their workers are laboring in the field, and he says you're treating them like animals. You're using chains and cords and a yoke. You know a yoke. A yoke is what connects two animals together. And a yoke is actually an external structure. It's not in the treatment itself. It's a structure that's put onto people. He says, I want you to liberate people, and I want you to break the structures that are holding them down. Is it not the fast that I want? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them? This is beautiful. This is Matthew 25. Jesus seems in Matthew 25, whenever he's saying that the last day, the sheep and the goats, and I'm going to judge, he actually goes through this list. He goes through this list and says, this is going to be the standard of judgment that I, that I give you. He's been reading Isaiah 58. The poor wanderer, some translations call it the homeless. But actually, the, the wanderer there is more than a homeless person. It's a stranger. It's a refugee. It's somebody, you, you ain't from around here. It's somebody who's coming in from the outside, who has no place to call home. He says, you bring them home, literally. You, you welcome them into your home. You're feeding the hungry, you're clothing the naked, and you're not turning away from your own flesh and blood. Wait, I thought you just said wanderer, because a wanderer is a foreigner. A wanderer is a stranger and a refugee. That's not my flesh and blood. My flesh and blood are these little guys that, that share my DNA. My flesh and blood is my family line. Many ethnic groups say, well, our, our flesh and blood, this is what the Nazis did, right? Blood and soil, blood and soil. It's about national identity and ethnic identity and a, a territorial identity, blood and soil. And, and Isaiah's like, hmm, every person, is my flesh and blood. Where's he going to say? Every person is your own flesh and blood? It's, what an incredible claim. The image of God is the basis, I think, of all justice. And here, here we have it. We'll talk more about that in just a second. He says, then your light, if you take on this fast, then your light will break forth like the dawn, your healing will quickly appear. Healing, this word in some context, is used of like what happens with a wound when the skin finally comes back over it. Then your righteousness will go before you. Picture this like a big shield or a breastplate of righteousness, where we heard that before, that goes before you. He says, you, you want to take on this? This is what it looks like. The glory of, your lo of the Lord will be your rear guard. He says, you'll be protected before you and behind you. There will be a light beaming. You'll, you'll have wolverine powers to heal yourself. 
It's incredible what happens to the righteous person. It's almost like shalom, like peace starts breaking in. Then you will call, and, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. You see, whenever you sin for help from the Lord, he doesn't just say, well, here's a care package. The doctor pays a house visit here. Here I am. At, at your beck and call, the God who refused to be a vending machine now shows up like a servant. Incredible. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, there's that yoke language again, with the pointing finger of the malicious talk, like your, your personal animus and your hostility to people, if you spend yourselves to spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your, your night will become like the noonday. He says, there's going to be a dawn coming on your life that's going to bring renewal to the people around you. Take a look at some of this renewal language. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. Wow. This is incredible. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. The one who drinks of this one, Jesus says, will never thirst again. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. I love this. He starts renaming his people. He's like, you get to be the repairer. You get to be the restorer. You get to be the advocate. You get to be the champion. This is what it will look like when you take on the fast that I want so what I want to do is step out of Isaiah and expand it we're going to draw from Isaiah to try to capture what a biblical picture of justice looks like and then we'll see how actually this resonates with a lot of what the Lord is saying throughout the scriptures I think this is a really important question what is biblical justice because there's so much conversation around justice as I've said before like you can't watch an NFL football game without seeing the word justice 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 all over the field and it's like I don't think that word means what you think it means if you just paint it on a football field, right? Like, what does this mean? And what is the basis for it? It's, it seems to me in, in Isaiah and in the rest of the scriptures, of course, there's a two-by-two two here. Sarah, thank you for being here today. I'll just look at you this whole time. All right, do you see the axes here? What I've called grace and law. Grace and law. Grace meaning like abundance and extra, and law meaning expectations and requirements. And left to right, we see private to public. This is what I do, this is what we do. Does that make sense? All right. Everybody's excited? First piece. So in, in the sphere of public and law, I call this universal dignity. Universal dignity. A just person honors rights with fair laws and judgments. You're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Justice, at its root, it just means to give someone what they're due. And in the scriptures, you look around at every person, this is Isaiah 58, and he says, everybody's your own flesh and blood. He says, you have to loose, you have to undo, you have to free. Why? Because some people's inherent rights are being restricted, and you have to set them free and break down the bonds. Isaiah 58 says that people who exploit their employees or fail to share their food with the hungry or provide shelter to the immigrant and don't spend themselves on behalf of the hungry, they're failing to loose the chains of injustice. That would be an act of injustice. A just person, on the other hand, does all those things. So to loose the chains of injustice points to the need to labor for the abolition of every way in which wrong social structures or wrongdoers in society, they destroy or diminish the due liberty of others. This is Moyer and his commentary. He says, to untie the cords of the yoke refers to the need to eliminate every way in which people are treated like animals. It's dignity. Dignity is a beautiful thing. But it is a Christian thing. Remember the Reverend Leonard Black, a former slave. He says, is, is man to be considered a mere ox? To be bowed up and stall fed? He says, the glorious truth is that man is indeed made in the image of God. You talk of selling a man, you might as well talk of selling immortality or sunshine. You see, the, 
The dignity is because in biblical law, there's no partiality. Every person is your flesh and blood. Every person has the same worth in equality. There's equality, there's fairness, there's no partiality. This is consistent across the Old Testament and the New Testament. Leviticus 19, 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 24. You are to have the same law for the immigrant, the alien, the foreigner, and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 16, 19. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe. Why not a bribe? Because bribes benefit the rich rather than the poor. We need fairness and equality. There's equal dignity. There's universal dignity. This is James 2, right? James says, when people come into your church assembly, and some are dressed nice, some are dressed, you can tell that they're poor. He says, don't show favoritism. Where does he get this idea? It's consistently the biblical vision of justice. But where do we get this basis? The basis of universal dignity, it was unheard of in the ancient world. Aristotle, Aristotle, like the, the philosopher, he argued that some ethnic groups deserve to be slaves. The Code of Hammurabi, this is you know ancient Babylon. He says the upper class could murder the lower class and pay a fine. The lower class could steal from the upper class and be executed. You see different laws for different people. Why? Because their laws were based on an idea that honor was deserved. It was earned. And then come the, the scriptures and the teachings of, of Christ. And they say, no, honor isn't earned. Honor is just given. It's inherent. It's, there's a dignity here. Tom Holland, great historian in his book, Dominion, he says, these cultures lacked any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. No, no culture ever invented this idea. It is a God-given idea revealed in the scriptures that every human person is made in the image of God. Scripture affirms the universal dignity of all people, that men don't have more honor than women, that native-born don't have less than, than or more than other immigrants, that the brilliant have more worth than the disabled. It undermines all of that in every category. Eric Mason he says, dignity is something we see in the Bible from the beginning. It's core to the creation narrative. And when we refer to dignity, we are talking about God-invested value. Dignity has many layers, and Christians believe that our dignity and value is rooted in God's creation of mankind and his purpose for his creation. So Proverbs 14 can say, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for his maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So, the first piece is in everyone, everyone in public, not just in public, every, every person in public has inherent universal dignity. The second dimension is this overlap of public and grace. If this is fairness and equality, now we've just moved up into the grace category. And what I'm calling here is social advocacy. A just person has special concern for the vulnerable. Special concern. In Isaiah 58, we see that there's special concern for what they call the worker, the oppressed, the hungry, the poor wanderer, the naked, right? All of these phrases are used. And as we're told to break every yoke and to take, take away the yoke, we're told to be people who rebuild and raise up so that you can be called a repairer and a restorer of the streets with dwellings. And so there's this group that we can think of as the vulnerable. And some scholars call them the quartet of the vulnerable. That's the fatherless, the widows, the immigrants, and the poor. It's this group that is consistently grouped together in the Old Testament. You call them the vulnerable, you call them the oppressed. And the oppressed are those broken by life, Marker says. It's not enough to work for amelioration. He objected is also to secure the positive values that have been lost. Instead of bondage and brokenness, there should be freedom. Not only the loosing of the yoke's harness, but also the breaking of the yoke itself whether of injustice, inhumanity, or inequality. This is the message of Isaiah 58. This is the message of the whole of scriptures. Justice is advocacy. Justice is advocacy for the vulnerable. Proverbs 31 says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Now, you may be thinking, well, I thought you just said that there shouldn't be an extra law for the poor and a different law for the rich. How is this fair? 
And the idea is basically that when people don't have a voice, they need someone to join in with their voice. Jillian, can you do me a favor? What would, like, Horton, who heard a who, say? <laughs> but would he sing it? <laughs> oh, I hear it in your voice. Yeah, the rest. Sing a lot the last couple days. A person's a person, no matter how small. I, I single her up. Jillian was just in a really wonderful play. I thought she was the star of the show. Um, Josie was an extraordinary part of it. Jacob Ware was on stage doing his thing. It was amazing to see some Oikos kids in this play. But one of the central messages of it is that story of Horton Hears a Who, where they, there are these invisible, very small people that nobody gives them a voice. And so it's actually an act of special concern. It's an act of advocacy when you start speaking for the ones that nobody can hear. It's not so that they will like, get special treatment. It's so that they will be treated with equality. Proverbs 29, the righteous care about justice for the poor. The wicked have no such concern. Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. And then all the people shall say, amen. 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 <laughs> That's in the text, by the way. That's not just me writing that in. Consistently, they, they, they single out vulnerable people and they say, people with a voice need to speak for the people without a voice. There has to be special concern. Why? And God says, because I'm concerned. Take a look at Psalm 146. He, God, upholds the cause. The justice is the word that's used, mishpah. He, he upholds the cause of the oppressed, and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Can we get another amen? Amen. Deuteronomy 10 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He, he does this one. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. So he also does this one. These are not opposed to each other in the vision of God. Proverbs 22, 22. Don't exploit the poor because they're poor. Don't crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case, and he will plunder those who plunder them. Proverbs 19. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what he's done. He says, you want interest on a loan? You want to be paid back? Lend to the poor. The Lord sees it. Psalm 68, sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice before him. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God is in his holy dwelling. It's just extraordinary. They're like, God is awesome. God is big. God is mighty. You know how we know? Because he sees the fatherless, and he sees the widow, and he makes a home for them. It's beautiful. Special concern, because God has a special concern for the people who are invisible. It isn't this partiality thing? We've said no. A person is a person no matter how small. And I think there are a number of ways to advocate and to show this special concern. There's relief for immediate needs. There's development. There's reform. But mostly, we're going to talk about that a lot next Sunday at our holistic ministry workshop. Okay, third dimension. There's universal dignity. Everybody, equal treatment. They honor the rights. There's special concern. And now third, there's radical generosity. There's radical generosity. A just person gives voluntarily for the needs in the community. Now, a lot of social conservatives are over here, right? Law and order. We, we need good laws, we need the enforcement. And then a lot of social progressives are up here, and they say, no, we need a redistribution in order to help out the poor. But you know where nobody is? Over here. <laughs> Neither uh, progressives nor conservatives like to think that generosity is actually part of the call to justice. Hmm. But the scriptures do. Isaiah 58 says, you just do as you please. And this is an indictment on the unrighteous, on the people in rebellion and sin. You do as you please. Is it not to share your bread in the hungry and give the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In 58 verse 10, he says, I'm looking for people who will spend themselves. This isn't spend your money. This is spend yourselves, not go pay for a house. And he says, I want you to welcome them home. Give your soul to, literally, is what it says. Justice is generously sharing voluntarily. This is all across the Old Testament. 
There are these laws that require like gleaning. Like you actually have to leave that. You, you can't cut everything for you. And the basis of radical generosity is actually a recognition that God owns everything. You, yes, the scriptures affirm some level of ownership, unlike like a Marxist or a progressive vision or a socialist vision which says the state owns everything or we're entitled to what you have. No, the, the scriptures say, no, you, you actually have it. It's yours. But the Lord gave it to you. It's been entrusted. That's a word. It's been, you're a steward of it. And so you're a caretaker of something that actually belongs to God. The, the Jubilee, how is it right to take the land that was bought and purchased by one family and to return it to another? Because it's not your land, it's God's land. How is it right for God to say, don't cut that part of your field, don't go all the way to the edges, leave it for the poor, that's theirs. Because it actually doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. So I, I think capitalism says, this belongs to me. Socialism says, this belongs to us. And the Bible says, this belongs to God. It's a totally different vision. Scripture critiques both the left and the right when it comes to ownership. And you say, but it's mine. Yes, it is, but it was given to you. First Chronicles 29, everything comes from you, Lord. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Everything comes from you. We've only given what comes from you. First Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Because it's yours, it means, yet yeah, there is a measure where it is yours, which means actually you have to answer for it. You have to, this is Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So what is a righteous person? What's a just person? This is Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Proverbs. He says, the righteous, this is what the Bible means about this word, they are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So, Keller says, we can say that to be radically generous is not only a matter of mercy, but of justice. The Bible isn't against wealth, but it is against greed. The Bible isn't against abundance, but it is against stinginess. The Bible isn't against ownership, but it's also for stewardship. And so there's a call to share, voluntarily. Last piece, another one that's totally ignored in justice conversations our day, is personal integrity. Personal integrity is a just person carries responsibility to God and the community. I mean, that's just, I'm, I'm bewildered by the justice conversations in our culture that don't have this as a, as a key factor. And I just, I see Christians advocating for this, and I see Christians advocating for that, and I never see them advocating for this. It's, it's really confusing to me. It's like, we all carry it. And I'm not saying you carry it individualistically. I'm saying you carry it to God and to your community. It's almost like the law and the prophets hang on this, <laughs> you know? There, there has to be a private integrity, a, a personal responsibility that's, that's carried. And this responsibility is not just for yourself, but it's actually for the people around you. You, in some ways, have to answer for your family, and you, in some ways, have to answer for your community and for your church particularly leaders, we all are shaped by the people around us and we carry responsibility with and for them. I want to live in a city where I don't have to worry about cars being stolen. Right? Don't we all want to live in a city? Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, Don, like, two down, right? Isaiah 58 says, you, you do as you please and you humble yourself but I'm looking for your light and I'm looking for your righteousness. I want a righteousness that goes before you. Justice is carrying responsibility in and for the community. It gives honor to God. It gives honor to yourself and it gives honor to others. And when we fail to act with integrity, it doesn't give our community what it deserves. It's a grave injustice to steal and to assault and to harm the community. And every act of sin does exactly that. It introduces death into a community. It is an act of injustice. Anytime someone in our community looks at pornography, 
Just imagine a young man who's addicted to porn, and then he comes in here and he sees all these women around. Is that a just community? Is that righteousness? To have our, our hearts and our eyes so shaped by even, even the most private of sins. No, our, our women deserve to be looked at with dignity. And this sin changes how our women are perceived. It, it makes them into objects. And I, I'm, I'm being gender specific only to illustrate the point. Of course this could go the other way too. And of course this could apply to any sin. Integrity is a justice issue. So progressives, Keller says, they stress the reality of corporate responsibility, virtually to the exclusion of the individual. While many conservatives and libertarians deny any corporate responsibility at all, but to take either position is to adopt some secular view of justice rather than a biblical one. The biblical text shows that both my sins and my outcomes in life are due to complex factors, both individual and corporate and environmental. We have a responsibility to all of it. So I think we are responsible for others. We are responsible for our community, and our community is responsible for us. Justice is care for all of this. So four dimensions of justice. And by the way, if you change one axis, it's different. So I'm not trying to say this is everything about justice in Scripture. These are just four aspects of justice in Scripture. Um, I think they're, they're pretty good, though. They're a pretty holistic vision. But what has to happen uh, I've heard Keller use this phrase. He says if you took like a bunch of yarn and you just threw it down, nothing would be kind of woven together. And so what you have to have is like a tapestry that weaves each of these together. And only through many people operating in all of these spheres can you have the strength and durability of something like a tapestry, something like a rug that's held together. And its fibers are stronger because of how it's been reinforced over and over by so many different people in the community. That's the kind of community we want here at Oikos. A community that hungers and thirsts for righteousness and that weaves together our lives in such a way that the poor are caught and seen and cared for and that the, the righteous just have this levying effect where shalom is present. So let me transition one more time. And then we just have a, a quick reflection on the feast. I think the most compelling critiques of Christianity have actually come from Christians. And this is sort of piggyback on the last transition. That if you care about justice, I think the Bible is what you want in your back pocket. That, that's actually the weightiness that you need in order to speak truth to the injustice that you see. And let me just give a few examples of this. Can I just give some historical examples of how Christians standing for justice have become uh, these people? Um, there's a lot. The end of the slave trade is one. Ronnie Stark, he says, although it's been fashionable to deny anti-slavery doctrines began to appear in Christian theology soon after the decline of Rome. If you want to know where slavery went originally, it was Christians. Where did the slave trade go in the Western world? He says, the abolition of the New World slavery was initiated by and achieved by Christian activists. <laughs> Despite the fact that hundreds of scholars over the last 50 years have looked for ways to explain it, one historian says that no one has succeeded in showing that those who campaigned for the end of the slave trade stood to gain in any tangible way from it, or that these measures were anything other than economically costly to the country. They said, we want to take on something costly against our own interests for the good of others. Why would they do such a thing? This is what Christians do. This is what Christians leaning into the critique of religion itself in Scripture. This is what they do. This is civil rights in the end of Jim Crow. Dave Chappelle, the historian, not the comedian, <laughs> he shows that liberals had the political power for decades to destroy Jim Crow, and they never did. What they needed was a religious revival to come in in order to actually see the end of it. It never happened. The only way to understand the end of Jim Crow, he says, is as a religious revival of the black church. One scholar reflecting on the civil rights movement, he says, when Martin Luther King confronted racism in the white church in the South, he didn't call on Southern churches to become more secular. Read his sermons. Read his letter from Birmingham jail and see how he argued. He invoked God's moral law and the scripture. He called white Christians to be more true to their own beliefs and to realize what the Bible really teaches. He didn't say truth is relative. Everyone's free to determine what's right and wrong for them. 
If everything is relative, there would have been no incentive for white people in the South to give up their power. Rather, Dr. King invoked the prophet Amos, who said, Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. The greatest champion of justice in our era knew the antidote to racism was not less Christianity, but a deeper and truer Christianity. We've seen the same thing in apartheid in South Africa with Bishop Desmond Tutu in the Center for Truth and Reconciliation. We've seen the same thing with Oscar Romero in El Salvador. It's because of his Christian beliefs that he stands up for the good of the people. We've seen the same thing with Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Nazi Germany. It is these people who lean into Christ who are the voice of justice in a world of, of sin and oppression. If you care about justice, I think Jesus, Jesus is the ally that you need. Not just one, but need. So where do you start a life of justice? Uh, man, this is a good question. I hope you've asked it before today. But let me give a few answers. The first channel of justice is the family itself. Your home. This is a, a phrase from Tim Keller's book, The Ministries of Mercy. And he said, all individuals and families have a responsibility to develop their own ministries of mercy. The first organization for the ministry of mercy is the Christian family. The Bible instructs each family to have a, a deacon ministry to the community around it. The Bible gives directives to take in the hungry, to help the homeless poor for hospitality. Hospitality is, of course, preeminently the work of the family. This is not to say that a single unmarried person is without responsibility. What we do mean is that the individual Christian home is the first building block in the ministry of mercy to the people of God. So how does a family begin its own mercy ministry? I think a family begins this one table at a time. This is what I continue to ask you for this year. We see every partner opening your home or your table for prayer at least once a month. If we want to become a just church, this is the tapestry and how it's woven together. It's where you go find someone who's hungry or who is going unseen and overlooked. It's someone that you don't know yet. And it's weaving together loving relationship with prayer at the center. So one table at a time, I think, is how it goes. But I do want to invite you once more to the Holistic Ministry Workshop that's happening next Sunday from 1 to 5. After in-home worship, come here. We'll probably be in the coffee house area. There'll be coffee. There'll be snacks. And there'll be lots of really strong reflection on what the scriptures say about justice and mercy. And we'll be reflecting on how we can do that together. I think it'll be an enjoyable time. I think it's a really important time. What we're asking for is that by God's grace, he can cultivate and illuminate passion for justice within Oikos. And that flowing out of that workshop, we can seek the Lord for a team to help build sustainable, holistic ministry at Oikos this year. Okay, last reflection. Last couple of verses of Isaiah. The feast. He says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I'll cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. I think even in our attempts at religion and our attempts at righteousness it can all become a part of the project self and building up something for my own making and the only way to actually become a just person is not to make it yourself is to receive the justification that's in Christ by grace that the one who actually kept all the laws and had his own private integrity and the one who honored everyone he gave his life to be dishonored, totally. The one who had special concern and advocacy for the poor from heaven, he actually said, I'm going to take that another level. I'm going to become poor. I'm going to show you what advocacy really looks like. In the incarnation, he, he becomes poor. He becomes a wanderer. He becomes oppressed. And of course, he carries his own yoke to the cross, and he is murdered. We want radical generosity and everything we have, we didn't earn. It's a gift of grace. And this experience of grace is what transforms us into people of justice. The experience of grace is what transforms us into people of justice. And so instead of saying, look at me, look at me, I'm just. 
I, I've proved it. I've, I've shown you, right? Or instead of saying, God, I keep seeking day after day. I, I, this is the fast that I choose. I just, another quarter in the vending machine. Instead of those things, he says, what I really want is just a joy with you. And if you could receive me for me, not receive me for my benefits, not receive me so that people will think you're, you're a just person, you care about the right things. If you could just receive me for me, that's a feast. And I think the table is the perfect picture of this. To receive in grace the gift of the body and blood of the King of Heaven is a, a foretaste of the feast that he promises forever. Would you stand? I want to pray for you and bless you and ask the Lord to bless our workshop on Sunday. Lord God, grow our hunger for righteousness and justice. Would you allow us to seek first the kingdom and your righteousness? God, would you create a fervor for justice and mercy at Oikos Church? Would you do it right now? Would you burden hearts today with a desire, with a passion, with a, with a commitment, God? Would you burden us to step deeper into this as a community of faith? Would you compel us, give us vision and clarity for how? One table at a time, Lord, if you want to start there, do it. But would you bless our workshop on Sunday? Would you bring us the people who need to be in the room? Would you um, just, would you speak from your scriptures as we search your, your will and your ways? God, for those who are hungering for justice, would you give us a sense of you so that truly we're hungering for you and hungering with you? Where it doesn't feel like we're, we're working against you, but instead we're, we're partnering with you. We're, we're filled by you and sent by you. God, we know you're not a vending machine. And yet we desire for, for our, our voices to be heard. And so we don't come to you on account of what we have done or what we have offered. We come in the name of the righteous branch of David, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord Jesus, would you advocate for us, the broken, the poor, the needy people that we are, and would you speak in heaven on our behalf? And Lord, would you pour out the blessings of heaven for your glory and for your kingdom? Amen.